0: Uh, thank you for sharing your unfinished story, thank you for um, praying together, it's just good to see you, and good to be with you, even in this um, artificial way, though honestly, as I've said before, when I've been with you uh, during COVID, I'm very grateful for this artificial way to be together, because it would be the only way I could be with you, so good to see you, Community Bible Church. Um, As we were, as we're looking at what Jesus accomplished Um, we come to this passage. And as I was reflecting on it, what came to mind was how often in these last few years, this last year, people use the language of apocalyptic, right? Um, Because if you look at all that's happened in the last 12 months, and for many of us, COVID lockdowns began just about 50 weeks ago or so, things began to shut down. So it's almost been a year. But when we started looking at There was a year of um, plague and pestilence. There's been um, unparalleled, at least in our shared memory of political upheaval and tension. There's been economic um, impacts that have far exceeded anything that most people would have expected. Um, And then the snow at the beginning of this year, uh, which I know pummeled New York and left us with feet of snow here in Chicago, people like, oh, this is unprecedented. And people use, especially on social media where people are more intense, the language of apocalyptic. And in their minds, they think apocalyptic means end times, right? This is like the end. It's exactly the way, bad way things are going to go. But in scripture, apocalyptic isn't about the end times per se. Apocalyptic, as I know you all know, is an unveiling. When scripture uses the genre of apocalyptic, like in Revelation or part of Daniel, what it's doing is not saying this is what how it will end, but we want to peel away the veil so that you can see beyond into what's actually happening. You may see wars and upheaval, but what you're really seeing is this is what's happening in the spiritual reality around us. And in that way, I think the last year, year and a half has really been apocalyptic. Not that It's the end, but it's an unveiling. It's beginning to reveal spiritual realities to us if we're attentive. Um, We begin to see where our idolatries lie. What are we really worshiping um, as individuals, as communities, as a nation? We see the way that uh, there's idolatry around politics and that leads to this heated rhetoric that if the other party wins, everything will, Um, be destroyed, right? I mean, that's the language they use, um, because it's been an ultimate thing. Um, We've watched uh, people think, um, reveal their idolatries around um, fear or uh, personal freedom and liberty, and we watch that played out in the public health arena all the time, as people decide which way they're going to go, and the language they use, because it's ultimate to them. We've thought a lot about the ultimacy of relationships and finance, all the things that we use to make us feel safe. Periods of crisis seem to reveal what's below that. And the reason I think this is important is it's very helpful occasionally to step back from the immediate narrative that you have to see the slightly bigger picture which might help interpret it. And I was thinking, about the ways that if i just told you somebody stabbed somebody with a knife and started cutting them we would think that was a disaster but if you're able to step back a little bit to the larger narrative and you finally figure out oh greg's describing a surgeon removing a tumor you would think it's still violent and painful but it may lead to life and i think it's that same pulling back and looking at the slightly larger frame that this passage is trying to do and i know last week Dick preached a little bit more about Jesus' death and betrayal, but Jesus sets up the story, or at least Matthew sets up the story, using um, this meal together. And I think it's this meal that he's having with his disciples before he heads to the cross that sets the larger narrative through which we can interpret it and begin to find our place in that story. And so if you look, again, um, almost really beginning on At verse 17 of Matthew 26, you'll see that Jesus really describes or Jesus is described in the story as the host. And the disciples are set up as a guest. Look um, at verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And while they're acknowledging that it's their role to set it up, they're coming to Jesus as the host where do you want us to do this so that we can have this Passover together? And Jesus says, oh, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my per- appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them to prepare the Passover. Jesus has already made the arrangements. He says, go to this town. I haven't even told you this, but go to this town, find this man, tell him the time has come and he'll, let, he'll give you the room and just you begin to collect the stuff. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, right? And um, you have a traditional um, Passover meal together. And Jesus is reclining, presumably, at the head of the table. The other um, disciples, um, at least with the 12, as far as Matthew is telling us, are eating together, sharing a common meal. It was uh, typical at those times that if you could fit around the table, you'd fit everybody and you'd all eat from a common plate. If you've ever eaten at an Ethiopian restaurant where you share from a common plate, that would be exactly the experience. It may have been because there were 12, there may have been two or three plates, but you're literally breaking bread and eating it together. You're sharing that meal together. Um, and And because Jesus has been hosting them at this meal, that's why the disciples are so particularly horrified when Jesus then says in verse 21, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Um, One of the, I mean, obviously they're horrified because they think we're friends. We've been together for three years. I can't imagine one of us would betray you, but underlying that be- friendship betrayal is particularly in the context of saying one of you who is breaking bread with me right now, one of you is dipping their bread into the bowl that we're sharing will betray me, is it's a betrayal of the host guest relationship that would have been so important um, in Middle Eastern culture. Um, there are obligations between a host and a guest that are expected, if you receive somebody somebody's hospitality as their guest, you're expected to do them honor, to participate with them, to protect them. And certainly as the host, it was your obligation to protect your guests. That's why for those of us who've read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, why when Lot, um, Lot's family and his guests are attacked by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot says, look, um, you want to sexually assault my guests. I have two daughters who are not married. You could have them instead. And anybody, right, in a modern sensibility would be horrified. Of course, you protect your family first, particularly your daughters. But the obligations of host guests are so high and so great that it's appropriate in Lot's mind to say, I would sacrifice my family to protect my guests, right? That's the level of intensity that you'd expect. And so when Jesus says, I am your host, And one of my guests in this room will betray me. It's not just a betrayal of friendship. It's actually a betrayal of deeply embedded um, cultural values at the time. But I just want to take a step and think a little bit about why that host-guest relationship is so crucial. Because I think at one level, it's the perfect um, context to explain what Jesus is doing in the rest of Matthew, isn't it? Let's think about the wider context. One of the ways to read scripture would be to think about it this way. In this world that we live in, God is our host. And we're his guests. The beauty and the abundance and delight described in Eden is the feast that he invites Adam and Eve to enjoy. I've created plants and vegetables and fruit in profusion. Not just one thing for you to eat, but a multitude that delights the eye and the senses that will nourish you and feed you everything that you could possibly want. I provided for you. And at the end of that story, as we all know, Adam and Eve guests in God's creation beneficiaries of god's generosity and goodness end up betraying him and they do so in a way that questions his generosity and goodness as their host right The satan says did god say you should not eat of any tree and he says well no it's just this one tree And then the serpent says to her but you know that's a great tree but fruit there is going is beautiful and tasty Right, and it was delightfully eye and good to the taste. And he says, "God's cheating you out of the best thing here. This will make you like God." And so Adam and Eve, rather than trusting in the generosity of their host, the abundance with which he's already provided, decide to take upon themselves the right to define what is good and what is bad. That's why it's the knowledge of good and evil. They decide God really is not trustworthy in defining this. We're going to choose for ourselves. And in a great act of rebellion, they choose to grab at the fruit and they betray their host while they're in their host's house. And that's some of the shock of Genesis three. And the rest of the Old Testament describes over and over the way that Israel rejects their responsibilities as guests in the land that God has brought them to, a land filled with milk and honey, right? God says, I just finished reading Deuteronomy in my quiet time. So this is very much at the top of my mind. God says, I'm going to bring you into this new land. I'm going to provide you with a beautiful home. I'm going to invite you into this place that I've reserved for you. And it's, it's so abundant that we say it's flowing with milk and honey. You don't even need to harvest the goodness that the land will be demonstrated to you. You're going to walk into this land and vineyards you did not plant are ready for the harvest and olive trees that you did not nurture for a decade are already bearing fruit. You're going to walk into cities that you did not build. And God is basically saying, I have, I'm hosting you here in ways that, um, so super abundantly anticipate every one of your needs. All you need to be is good guests here. Follow me. Worship me. Don't turn to these other idols that cannot provide. And of course, as we all know, the rest of the story of the New Testament after Israel enters the promised land is they continually betray that host-guest relationship. They go places they're not supposed to go. They uh, eat what they're not supposed to eat. They worship who they should not worship. It's a little bit as if if you were invited to somebody's home as a house guest and they said, please don't go into the garage. It's unsafe for you there. We're doing a little construction and there's some stuff that for our family, we just put over there, but anywhere else in the house, you would like to go, please feel free to go. And you take it upon yourself while they're seemingly absent to go to the garage, even though they've specifically asked you not to Right? over and over Israel does this again. Part of the story of the old Testament is really what Jesus is saying at that moment. One of you, who's my guest in this place, one of you who I've provided this meal for that we could share together is going to betray me. And that's, I think, what makes the conversation between Jesus and Judas so heartbreaking in this passage, isn't it? Look again at verses 23 through 25. Jesus said, "Um, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me, which all the disciples had, and all the disciples were like, "Surely it isn't me." Then Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, said, "Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi." Jesus answered, "You've said so, or it's what you said." It's interesting that um, Judas refers to Jesus as Rabbi, while everyone else refers to him as Lord, as you see in verse 22. And this is a distinction that only Matthew makes. But in fact, in the book of Matthew, none of the disciples ever call Jesus rabbi, Um, I believe. I believe they only call him Lord. It's just Judas who never calls him Lord, but something a little less. Surely it isn't me, teacher. (laughs) Um, And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, those are your own words. As painful as that moment must have been to Jesus. And Matthew highlights that, doesn't he? Because he describes Judas not as just one of the other disciples, but um, Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, says, surely not me. And Jesus still answers him, presumably quietly and presumably pretty close. It's what you said. It still strikes me that in this most intimate of meals, In this um, most vulnerable kind of moments, Jesus still has Judas breaking bread with him. That in this meal, which we have instituted as our communion service, and which the church has repeated on a regular basis for more than 2,000 years as a way of remembering what Jesus accomplished, Judas is not excluded from the meal, but he's still there. Judas is still breaking bread. With the man he will betray. G- Judas is still seated close enough, presumably, that Jesus can say, It's you. And Judas knows the game is up. And Judas knows that Jesus knows. And Jesus still welcomes him at that table. I think in part because throughout the Gospels, Jesus has shown consistently who he welcomes to sit at his table. He's delighted and heartbroken, welcoming and hopeful as he gathers to himself, people who have betrayed him, people who will betray him, people by whose choices that they've demonstrated that they're both far from God and disinterested in him, and people who are lost and know they're lost and are coming to seek him. It's a part of the framing of the story to remember that Jesus, even at the end, doesn't shy away from engaging with Judas. He knows what Judas will do, but still welcomes Judas to this meal. For me, this gives me great hope. For all that I would like to think I will not betray, my Lord, the reality is, I am likely to betray Jesus at some level and in some way by what I've done or what I've left undone through thought, word, and deed um, before the day is over. It may not be a dramatic betrayal, but there will be a betrayal at some point when I let my own desires, wants, and needs trump what I believe Jesus may have called me to do. There may be a time where I squelch how the Holy Spirit is nudging me. Call this person, get this thing accomplished. Show mercy or kindness in this way. And I think I would rather do something else right now. It may be a small opportunity that I'm given to show grace, mercy, kindness, or love to somebody in my family um, before the day is over. And I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. And so the opportunities for my sinning against them Uh, through my own impatience uh, or frustration or much higher during COVID when we've been together for so long than it might be if we were all able to wander out a little bit more. Um, And yet Jesus reminds me, eat at my table. Drink my drink. You are still welcome here. I know you will betray me. But If we repent and turn to him, do not be afraid. If Jesus sets himself up as the host and us as guests, as guests who are very likely to potentially betray him, he then moves the conversation in an unexpected way. And then he says, I'm not only the host, but I'm also your Lord. And he establishes a new covenant. And that's what's happening in verses 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until from now on, until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, let's pull back the story a little bit Um the Old Testament background uh, is the story of covenants, right? And in fact, Old Testament and New Testament, testament is a way of saying covenant. We could equally call them Old, older covenant, newer covenant. Covenants were um, treaties where a king would make an agreement with a vassal and the agreement would outline the obligations of each party and would describe the penalties uh, for violating the agreement. And if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this before, right? I am the Lord God Almighty who brought you with my mighty hand and outstretched arm out of Egypt, and this day I'm establishing this covenant with you. Um, And basically God says, I brought you out, I've saved you, I'm going to bring you to this land, it's going to be beautiful, good, and flourishing, you'll conquer your enemies, you'll have everything that you need, and all you need to do is worship me and do not turn to idols. And if you do this, then write the promises. I will bless you every... um, I was just reading, as I said, in Deuteronomy, right? Your kneading trough will be full of dough. Your children will be filled in your house, right? Your lands and animals will be great. The armies that oppose you will fall. Um, And if you violate this covenant, God always says, then these evil things will happen to you. But if you turn to me, I will redeem you and restore you. Um, And if you... One way to understand the Old Testament, right, is that it's a series of covenants that God is making. In fact, my older daughter, Madeline, who many of you have met over time, is in um, our church's confirmation class. So it's a two-year process where they're walking them through from Genesis to Revelation to give them the big story of scripture. And we do this with all of um, our middle schoolers. And um, she was just joking last week. She's like, you know, um, the the, uh, confirmation teacher was asking a question and the reality is whenever you don't know the answer, it's probably covenant. Um, It's a little bit like younger kids in Sunday school. What's the answer? I don't know, Jesus, right? Because you always assume it's going to be Jesus somewhere in that Sunday school class. Well, when you're doing a Bible overview as part of confirmation, it's covenant, um, evidently is the word. And if you look at covenant making, you begin to see resonances with what Jesus is doing. So in Genesis 15, there's this um, almost... Bizarre passage where God comes to Abraham and reiterates the promises that were made in Genesis 12, which were the ones that we are most familiar with, right? I will make you a people whose descendants um, are far more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands in the sea. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham has been waiting a long time since Genesis 12. And so in Genesis 15, he goes, How can I know that you're going to do this? I've been waiting. I don't even have a child of my own yet. And God says, we're going to make a covenant and so he instructs uh abraham in genesis 15 take a series of animals and i want you to cut them in half and um put one part of the body on one side and the other part on the other side and keep watch and so genesis 15 says Ad- abraham kept watch and kept the you know vultures and um carrion away from it and then um at night it says Um, The Lord appeared like in a smoke pot, like in a burning fire, and walked between the cut portions of the animal. Now, for those of us who didn't live at that time, it seems a little strange, but this was one of the ways that people would make a covenant. They would take animals and sacrifice them, cut them in half, and then you would walk between the parts of the animal with the person you were making a covenant with. And as you would walk past these, these dismembered animals, part of what you would say after making the covenant right, these promises and obligations and uh, penalties, you would say, may this happen to me, may my body be torn apart like this if I violate the covenant I have made to you. And so you'd pass the animals that have been torn apart. This is the penalty if I betray my covenant with you. What's interesting, of course, in Genesis 15 is that it's not both parties walking between those uh, dismembered animals. Um, it's God himself. He's the one making the promises and he's choosing to say implicitly, may this happen to me. If I violate the covenant I've made with you, Abraham. And it's, I think with that background in mind, that Jesus picks up that same kind of imagery and he takes the bread and he breaks it and said, this is my body. Right. Um, Take and eat. Paul, as he describes this situation in Corinthians, which is the words of institution we mostly use in communion, this is my body broken for you. Um, I am the guarantee of this covenant. And this will happen to my body if I or you violate this covenant right? Um, The penalty is the penalty that God takes upon himself. My body will be broken to ensure that this is given to you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is um, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, It will be my blood, which is shed to ensure the covenant um, is made. And it's my blood that will be spilled When either one of us violate the terms of this covenant, which in the end is only humanity which is capable of violating this covenant. Because Jesus alone bears the penalty that we were due for the violations of the relationship that we had with him. He was our host and we were his guests. We violate the terms of our host-guest arrangement and Jesus says, you won't be responsible. I'll take on the penalty of this. I'll bear the weight of this. Let this happen to me if either party violates this covenant. And he says, so take and drink each one of you so that you can participate in this covenant. It's a a, a callback, I think, to Exodus 24, 8, whereas Moses is reestablishing the covenant with Israel. He demands a sacrifice and then he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on all the Israelites saying, you've been touched. By this blood, you've been brought under this covenant that now binds us as a people to Yahweh himself and binds Yahweh to us. We are now his people and he is now our God. He identifies with us this way. And Jesus takes that imagery, I think, and says almost, I'm not going to sprinkle you because um, this needs to go deeper than just an outside touch of a new covenant. Um, I'm not just going to splash you I need you to drink and incorporate this, because the change that's going to occur isn't just external, it's deeply internal and profound. The law could only change our outward behavior, but Jesus intends to do so much more. So what is this new covenant that Jesus is offering? What's really crucial for us to understand this new covenant that he makes with his blood and his broken body is actually the fulfillment of all the other covenants that God has been making. It's not new in the sense of unheard of or novel. It's new in that it's the newest one and it's the fulfillment of all of the other ones. And that's why it's so beautiful and profound. It's the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham. That finally here was going to be a people who belonged to God and who literally would be a blessing to the very nations. And you prayed about that. Today, as you prayed for missionaries around the globe who are declaring the goodness of God, bringing um, health to marriages, education to people who needed the hope of the gospel, to people who have not yet heard, Jesus is saying, you will be the fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham, and it, you really will number far more than the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. It's the fulfillment of the covenant with Moses and with Israel that God said, I promise you, if you turn to me, if you repent, I will gather you from the farthest nations and I will incorporate people that you could not even imagine into this greater family that will then be part of the way I bless the world. I will gather you. And everyone who is distant to myself it's the fulfillment of the covenant to David right that there is a ruler who will come from his line who will reign forever and ever and we are invited to participate in it it's the promise of the covenant um, that God makes in Jeremiah 31 31 through 35 a covenant which doesn't just return you to the land which Israel was still kind of waiting for because it was under Roman rule but I will bring you to a place where suddenly Your heart itself, you will experience forgiveness and your heart will know my law. And you will be changed in a way that it isn't just about external conformity, but inward desire to become my people. What's beautiful about this covenant that Jesus makes is not that it does new things, but it actually is the culmination of every promise that God makes in the Old Testament. And God goes, I'm answering them all now. I've been faithful is what God is saying. The covenant I made with Abraham will be fulfilled. The covenant I made with Moses will be fulfilled. The covenant I made with David will be fulfilled. The covenant that I told you to anticipate when Jeremiah was prophesying is now being fulfilled, is the Holy Spirit is going to come as we find after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you'll be given a heart of flesh and you won't have a heart of stone any longer. The dead bones will be clothed with life again. You will desire me and you will find me because I have made myself found. Part of what Jesus is doing as um, he shares this meal as he's, is this, God is fulfilling all of his promises. Every desire that God planted in your heart as you read through the Old Testament, God is saying, I will make, I will fulfill those promises I made. And then he says, and it's going to be done because I am the covenant maker, I will be the covenant keeper, and I will ensure the covenant occurs by taking myself on myself the penalty of what happens when you violate the terms of the covenant. For you, my people, he seems to be saying, there's only promise and blessing. I will take the penalty, do not be afraid. think a little bit what's happening in that meal as happens in any meal when the people of God gather together is we're reminded of God's goodness and generosity as he hosts us we're reminded that God as the covenant maker and keeper will right everything that is wrong in our world he's promised to make all things new and he will He's promised he will comfort the afflicted. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes in his presence. He's promised he will make us into Christ-likeness and he will be faithful to that promise. We will stand before him and he will say, you are beautiful and whole and righteous in the way that my son is righteous. Whether it's personal, um, the promise of personal change and the Reality of forgiveness, whether it's the way we engage the world and needing God's comfort, care, and provision, or whether it's the way that the entire world and its systems and structures currently are rebellion, but will one day be brought underneath Christ's lordship. God says, I promise these things in the Old Testament. The people in the New Testament believed and expected it to be true because I have reiterated this covenant to you. And the rest of the New Testament begins to work out what that looks like and that we, 2,000 years later, well, I, I was looking again at the bulletin today is really then why we have the vision that we do as a church, right? Believing that God keeps his covenants. Each of us is a missionary because we are designed to be a blessing to the nations. Believing that he's called us to be a new people to, who belong to him, a new family that transcends biology, ethnicity, culture, class, and gender and status we've become a new family to one another who support one another and care for one another deeply because that's what it means to be the new people of God. And that we're people who dig deeper with God and into God because he's promised, I'm your God. You are my people. And as Paul says, one day you're going to see fully and you'll be known fully just as you are fully known now. Do not be afraid. Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. And it's in that context, right, of Jesus making this new covenant, that when we step back away and you see the apocalyptic way that our idolatries and our rebellions um, and our betrayals are now are best understood. It's not that God is petty. It's not that God is small minded or jealous in a kind of insecure way. Instead, he seems to be saying something far greater and far bigger. I, I love you. I've made a promise to you what I will be to you and who you can be to me and who together we will be for the world. Don't walk away. I promise you the things that I said would happen for you individually And for the world, I will accomplish, and I myself will bear the penalty if you betray me. Do not be afraid. There is forgiveness at hand. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful for my friends at Community Bible Church, um, for the ways they consistently live out what it means to be members of the New Covenant, Um, and for the ways they invite other people to share in its beauty and its richness and its grace. So strengthen them in the season, and as vaccines roll out in the congregation and elsewhere, praise be to God, I pray, um, position them in the season to come to reach out um, with even more love and generosity and grace to the people and the communities that they live in. Um, We pray these things in Christ's name.